So the holidays are over. And, um, you know, one of the things that I love about Christmas and New Year's is not just the fact that I don't like just the moment. I also like, because I'm kind of a reflective person, I love to think back. And the holidays, of course, are very conducive um, to making memories, right? So I have a lot of memories, as I'm sure you do as well. I have memories of kind of getting, or when I was a kid, going to uh, Michigan where my uncle was every or every other year. And I those have great memories with it. I have the memory, I think I've shared this before, about getting an Atari 2600 when we lived on Guam. What a great game console that was. I have, a, I, I have memories on New Year's Eve of just kind of gathering around and reading, or not reading, of gathering around and watching movies and playing games with my family and friends. There's lots of great memories that I'm sure that if I were to ask you about Christmas or New Year's, that many of you would be able to flood me with stories that you remember. There's something uh, about the holiday season that is particularly nostalgic and enjoyable. Now, if we're also honest, the truth is that most of us also have memories from Christmas and New Year's that may not be quite as enjoyable. I was thinking about that as I was reflecting on just this very past Christmas uh, Sunday that we had two weeks ago now. It was not exactly the most enjoyable of Christmases for the deck family. Christmas Eve went swimmingly. We had a great time. We had two wonderful family services in the morning. Our girls, uh, three of them at least, sang in Sunshine Singers twice. It was wonderful. They all came back at the seven o'clock, and we had, they loved the candlelight service. Everything was, was great, really. And then Uh, We had all packed up all of our stuff on Christmas Eve, and we had planned to come here for the 10 o'clock service and then leave directly and go to Colorado to visit Megan's family. It was going to be great, and everything was perfect until about 4 o'clock on Christmas Day morning uh, when our uh, 4-year-old came down and said she wasn't feeling good. And and then before you know it, and I don't know how to say this politely, uh, she threw up. And so we were like, oh, well, that's not good. And so we were hopeful that she was just overly excited. And so, uh, and so I went ahead and I came here a little bit early for the 10 o'clock service. And then Megan, I talked to Megan on the phone. She said, we're not going to make it. I don't think the other two are feeling that good. And sure enough, by the time I got home, the three oldest girls um, were all, how do I say this? you know, throwing up. And so it wasn't that great. And at the Christmas Day service, I had said to a couple of folks, or maybe I'd said to everyone who was there, which was a couple of folks, I had said to them, you know, uh, that, 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 our girl, that, that, that one of our girls at least was not doing well, you know. And I said, a couple people came up to me afterwards and said, you know, are you going to still go on to Colorado? Are you still going to wait a day or two? I'm like, oh, no. We dex, we don't wait. We drive. And that's what we did. Now, I have to be honest with you to say that there were many times amidst the drive that I thought this was really dumb. Because as we were driving, we had two bowls, and uh, and we just kept driving. I know, I know, and I'm making sure you're awake. And we just kept passing the bowls around as they were needed. Uh, And then we would pull over to the side, you know, every 50 or 60 miles, we would dump and wipe, and then we would continue on. And it was not exactly what we had hoped for our Christmas day. Now I tell you that for two reasons. One is I want you all to feel sorry for me. But two is because I want you to know that there was actually a silver lining to all of this. 
Now, if any of you have driven with young kids, as probably many of you have, especially on long journeys, as we do a fair amount in the deck household, you know it is not peaceful, right? We don't have video screens in ours, so there is nothing to distract the children. And so what they love to do, of course, is to fight and to push one another and to complain to their parents. And um, our four-year-old loves to ask a thousand incessant questions. It is not a peaceful thing. But on this day, as I looked back in my rearview mirror, in between bowls, Adelie was sleeping. Shaughnessy, our oldest, was kind of looking off in the distance. Uh, Winnie was just staring at her bowl. It was amazing. I realize why parents give their children Benadryl before they go on trips. I mean, I'm not recommending it, but I understand it. It was so peaceful. It was like we were all like on a 15-hour date, Megan and I, as we were driving. I mean, mixed in with some unpleasurable things. But by and large, we could talk and talk and talk, and we weren't interrupted. It was fantastic. And so we spent a fair amount of time on this journey talking, a fair amount of time talking to one another. And and what we like to do on these Christmas trips, it's usually not quite as peaceful as it was right then, but what we like to do, like many I'm sure like to do, is we like we talked a little bit about what was this past year like and and what do we want the next year like. And really what we spent a lot of time talking about is uh, how did we measure up to who we think we are as decks. If decks, if this is the story of the deck and this is what we want, this is who we believe we are and what we want to be, how did we do and how might we do things differently in this upcoming year? So if we're a family, hopefully, that is following Jesus, how did we do this year and and what are the places we could do better at? If we're a family that values education, how did all of our kids do? How did we do as adults and is there something more that we can do in the future? If, If we value extended family, uncles and grandparents of whom we live very far away, have we spent enough time with them and what can we do differently? And this is what we kind of, a lot of what we kind of talked about during our those more peaceful moments of the drive. And of course, not surprisingly to you, my guess is, if I think it's important for us to do that as decks, I also think it's remarkably important for us to do that as a church family. To ask ourselves here at the beginning of the year, how have we measured up? How have we done at understanding who we are and who we are called to be. And as I thought about what story is it that befits that best, I think it's probably Luke 10. Luke 10 is a great passage for asking, how are we doing at being the church that Jesus wants us to be? I I preached on this very text early last year. My hope would actually be that we would perhaps preach on this once a year, perhaps at the beginning of the year, just to kind of remember who we are and to say, what things have we been doing well and what things could we do better? Now, there's a lot of good stuff in this particular passage, and we could go on and on for days and days, but I want us to just simply touch on some things real quickly and then take one step back and reflect on one attribute of this story a bit more deeply. Now, the first thing that I want us to see when it comes to this story as a reminder of who we are is that it says that Jesus sent them out in in pairs. Right, He sent them out two by two, which is a great reminder of the fact that the journey of Jesus, following Jesus, is not best done on our own, but with a community, with a pair, with others. 
It's easy for us, it seems to me, to oftentimes think that we can do this on our own. And I have a feeling that when Christians believe that they can do this on their own, what they are actually doing is following more of what they see in the mirror than the Jesus they see in the Scripture. The reality is following Jesus is not easy. If it seems easy to you, there's a good chance you're not following Jesus. The reality is it is hard, and we need a community to help encourage and challenge and support one another. And so Jesus sending them out in pairs is not just a nice little detail. It is a reminder of the importance that we are in community together. But not just that. It says that Jesus sent out 70 others. And the question I always like to ask when it comes to this particular part of the story is, what were the names of those 70 others? Nobody knows. Which means it was a bunch of ordinary people. These are people whose names we don't know, we will never know. But it means that what Jesus loves to do is to work through ordinary people. Right? And it's very easy for us as churches to begin to think that the people who are really supposed to follow Jesus are the people who are either getting paid for it, or the people we know in our lives for whom faith just seems to come easily. But the reality here, of course, is that Jesus is not sending out the special 12, if you will, as we might see them, though they're not always all that special even themselves, but that Jesus is sending out each and every one of us, that all of us, no matter how ordinary or extraordinary we may think we are, Jesus is sending out each and every one of us, that you, whomever you are, have been called, have been loved by God, and have now been called to go out for God. Right, that this is all of us, that we do it in community, and that we are a community of ordinary people who do extraordinary things because not of who we are, but of who God is. But then not only that, of course, Jesus goes on to say that the harvest is plentiful. In other words, that there is a lot of work out there for those who are awake and are alert to it. Truth be told, it is easy for us in the busyness of our lives, and times will get busier and busier as this year continues for most of us, it is easy for us to forget. It is easy for us to begin to focus only on what we need or our family needs or what we want. And what Jesus is reminding us of is that we have a greater calling as followers of his. That we have a greater calling, which is to always be alert to what it is that God may be doing in our midst. That we always need to be reminded of that. In fact, Jesus kind of points out even more so how important this is, the urgency of it, when he tells them that they are not to greet anyone along the road. This is not Jesus telling us to be rude to people. This is Jesus saying, don't be distracted. Jesus knew that we are an easily distracted people. And if we are not careful, we will be so distracted that as we lay there on our deathbed someday, we will reflect on the reality that we've ended up watching 10,000 hours of football and 10 or 15 hours in our life of actually serving and caring and loving for others. And Jesus says, don't end up there. Live your life with a sense of urgency, knowing that God is a Live in your midst. So focus, Jesus says. But not only that, he says, focus 
right where you are. Jesus says this twice, which we always know means it's very important, which is that eat and drink whatever is set before you. Truth be told, many of us spend a lot of time thinking about and wishing that our lives could be a little bit different. Wishing, perhaps, what if we lived over there instead of having to live here? Or what if, what if this hadn't happened to me? Or what if that had happened to me? Or what if I hadn't made that relational move? Or what if that person hadn't made that relational move with me? What if all these things, and oftentimes we can get lost thinking and reflecting on how much better things could be if we'd made that investment or not made that investment or bought that house or not bought that house or whatever else. And Jesus says, eat and drink whatever is set before you. Stop wishing you could eat and drink something else or something better. There is something to be eaten and drank right here. In other words, God is doing something right where you are, right where you work, in the relationship that you are a part of, wherever it is that you are. Stop wasting time wishing that you were someplace else. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that you can't spend a few minutes in the midst of this frozen tundra wishing that you were in Hawaii. That's fine. But don't do it for too long because there is work to be done for those who have the eyes to see it and to live in when the urgency of the present rather than waxing nostalgically about what might be. Now, that's just kind of a quick drill through some of these things, but there's one thing that I really want us to think about a bit more. And it's something that I think we can forget pretty easily. A lot of times when it comes to stories in the Scripture, we look at them almost like robots, the people that are involved, and we don't think about one thing, which I think is really important if we want to connect with the stories and with the people in the stories. And that is to ask, what were they feeling? What were these 70 feeling as they went out and began to follow the mission of God? I think sometimes we just make these great assumptions that they went out and they were just, they just did it. This is fantastic. We can't wait, Jesus. Just let us go. And I have a feeling that that wasn't what they were feeling. In fact, I think Jesus actually paints a picture. You got to give Jesus credit. He is very honest about this, right? Jesus says to them at the beginning, you are going to go out like lambs before wolves. Now, when I gave this sermon or when I preached on this passage last year, I put up a picture at the time when I said that. You may remember the picture. Do we have that, Betsy? There it is right there. Now, What I said was that really we should probably put this up on our website. This should really be the front page of wolves eating lamb. Now, I know that this is disgusting. I get that. But in reality, oftentimes, this is probably a better image of what it means to follow Jesus than just a bunch of happy, beautiful people smiling as we have on our website, right? Now, our communications director is probably not overly keen on us doing that, right? And we can take that down before we have to pass out any bowls. But the reality is that this is a remarkably vulnerable action. 
that what Jesus is asking them to do is incredibly vulnerable. And they would have felt that. And I wonder to myself, do we feel a sense of vulnerability as we follow Jesus? You see, first of all, of course, Jesus asked them to leave his physical presence, to go to the places where he was going to go. In other words, he had not been there yet, and he was not going with them. There's something incredibly safe about being able to stand there with Jesus physically and being able to see him. It gives you a certain amount of courage, right? That you can go, if Jesus is there and someone asks you a question that you don't know, you'd be like, hey, I don't know, but Jesus... And there's something incredibly scary about having to go to a place and know that there may be questions asked that you don't necessarily have the answers to, right? So there's a certain amount of vulnerability that comes from the very beginning. Not only that, Jesus says, not only do I want you to leave me, but I want you to carry only what you are wearing. Don't bring anything extra. Most of us like to have some extra stuff with us. Right? When we had got done packing for Colorado, Megan looked over at my suitcase and what I was bringing, and she said to me, have you always packed so much stuff? And I said, I don't know, but you got you to think through every scenario. We're going to Colorado. It could be hot. It could be cold. We, I might spill something on myself. I, we might be able to go out on the town one night if your parents watch our kids. We might be able to, I might have to go to the playground with my kids and we may be muddy or something. We could be there and we might win a contest to go to Hawaii while we're there. And you want to have your swimsuit with you if that happens. You don't want to be caught unawares, right? So I would bring, I bring everything. And why do I bring so much stuff? Why do I wrestle with not bringing stuff? Because I want to make sure that I'm fully prepared. I want to bring everything that I possibly can. Because if I don't, then I'm going to feel vulnerable. What happens if I get in a situation and I don't have my swimming trunks with me and I need them? What's going to happen? And you play all these out and Jesus said, no, 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 no. Just take what you are wearing. But we prepared, we prefer, quite frankly, to have as much stuff as possible. Not only that, of course, not only does he tell them all this, but he also says you have to depend on people's hospitality, which means that they were going to have to go out and hope that someone was going to feed them. They were going to have to go out and hope that somebody was going to house them, right? They were going to go out and hope that maybe they got something good to eat. And then, of course, Jesus said, as we've already mentioned, that you have to eat and drink whatever is set before you, right? In other words, stay right where you are. And one of the things that I love to do when I'm in a vulnerable situation is it's coping if I know that there's an exit, if I know that, okay, well, there's the door and I can get out if I really absolutely have to, or I only have to be stuck with this, you know, in this situation for five hours or 10 hours, I like to know that I have an exit plan. And Jesus has taken away their exit plan. There is an immense sense here of being absolutely vulnerable. And that's something that most of us would not choose to do. But what I have discovered in this walk of Jesus and what I think others have discovered and what we see in the scripture is that so often Jesus is going to work inside of you and through you, not in moments when you feel safe and you feel secure and you are comfortable and you are in control, but in moments when you do not feel safe, when you are not in control, when you feel a remarkable amount of dependency on God. When we are in control, oftentimes, 
times, God can only do so much through us. When we give up that sense of control, when we are vulnerable, God can do an amazing amount of things through us, just as we see in the story in Luke 10. But that is really hard for us. And I think it's hard for us and gets harder the older we get, at least in the middle age, and the more stuff that we have. As we were leaving Colorado, we left late in the afternoon. It started getting dark, and we were on a two-lane road, and we were going about 70 miles an hour or something like that. And I was noticing I was getting kind of nervous because people were coming the same, you know, coming the opposite way at about 70 miles an hour. And so I was clicking through what would happen if that person went over, if I kind of went over, what would, you know, what, 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 what would happen? And I, and I thought about that, and I realized, and I said this to Megan 15 years ago, it would never have crossed my mind. First of all, I wouldn't have just been going 70. Secondly, I would have been passing over people. I wouldn't have even thought that anything bad was going to happen. There was just a sense of I wouldn't have felt vulnerable at all. I'd just kind of fly by. And Megan said, well, you know, it also might be because of the fact that you, you, you know, you have a little more precious cargo in here, you know, than you did, right? Of course, we have four kids now. It's not like it's just me. So I, I have some more anxieties, right? And that's understandable. And that's probably good for us to be a little bit more safe when it comes to driving. But it isn't good when it comes to the reality of our spiritual journeys. In fact, one commentator said that he thinks there may be a direct correlation between the decline of the church in America and the rise in disposable income. Because the older you get and the more stuff you have, the more treasures, whether that's children or whether that's just plain stuff, the more you begin to focus on that. The more you begin to kind of protect that. The less you like to be vulnerable. And I think it is absolutely critical in our faith journey to be willing to engage in practices of vulnerability. Because I think it is only when we are willing to do that, most often at least, that God is able to actually work in remarkable ways in our lives. But we have to be willing to be vulnerable. And so that's my question for us this morning. As we enter into 2017, I want to know Because I don't think you'll probably hear this in many other places. I want to know, where are you willing to be vulnerable in 2017? It will not just happen. You will have to be intentional about it. For some of us, it may be going to a great banquet this year. There's going to be two in March, one for men, one for women. And and, and I'm here to say, I'm going to give you, I'm going to be honest with you when it comes to great banquet. You're going to go, and you're going to be surrounded by a bunch of people you don't know all that. You're going to sing a song that's a little bit goofy. You're going to sleep in a bed that's not all that comfortable. On that first night, there's about a 9 out of 10 chance that you are going to be saying to yourself, get me out of here. You are going to feel vulnerable. But I am also here to say 
That for those of us who have gone through those 72 hours, one of the things that we also discover alongside of that, I would suggest because of that, is that we also are given the space to focus on God, to experience grace, to experience community in ways we never would have had we stayed in control and been remarkably comfortable. And so perhaps your act of vulnerability this next year is to engage in a great banquet. Maybe it's to be a part of a home group. Again, I'm going to be honest with you. When it comes to home groups, I know that it's a vulnerable thing. Oftentimes, especially in the beginning, you're going to be surrounded by people you don't know all that well, probably. You're going to talk about God. Sometimes we struggle even talking about God with our spouse or with a good friend, and you're going to ask to do that. Sometimes someone might even cry or share something that's kind of awkward. But you know what? What we've discovered is that most people who go through home groups for 10 weeks, that they begin to experience God in different ways and experience community in a different way. So maybe that's your practice of vulnerability. Or perhaps your practice of vulnerability this year is to say we're going to be hospitable in some deeper way than what we have been. That's what Megan and I, we decided on our kind of long journey out. We've said, you know what, we share a table with a fair amount of people, but we want to be even more intentional. And so we said, we're going to do, on the, on the odd months, we're going to invite someone from our neighborhood into our home. And on the even months, we're going to invite somebody from ZBC that we haven't shared table fellowship with. We're going we're gonna to do that with them. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm looking forward to the even months. Uh, I'm looking forward to having, now, I have to say that because you guys are right here, but I really am. I'm, I'm more than happy to share the table with, with people from ZPC. I am less than thrilled about doing that with people in our neighborhood, even people that we know. Why? And I've shared this before, and I don't know if you guys believe me, but I could tell you story after story of the fact that people are uncomfortable, especially people who don't go to church, are uncomfortable being around a pastor. Right? I mean, I just had a conversation just a couple months ago with somebody, and I knew as soon as they asked me, what I did, I just knew that it was going to go south. And sure enough, as soon as I asked, I said to my pastor, ah, oh, John, I'm sorry. And the mask just came up. What I know is this, that when I invite somebody from our neighborhood into our home, they're going to say, great. <laughs> We're busy all year. And if they do, and I would say especially the husbands in my own experience, they're going to be walking up thinking, I can't believe we have to spend this time with this pastor, right? I'm sure it'll be fine once they come in. I'll hand them a big Bible that we have, and everything will be great. But So I feel vulnerable, quite honestly, because it's vulnerable knowing that people are coming over who probably would prefer to not be there. Now, the hope would be, as the conversation continues, that, that it would be a good time. But we know, Megan and I are certain of the fact that this is a part of the call that we have been given to be vulnerable. Now, let me be very clear. I cannot stand up here and promise you that everything will work out well. That's what makes this so vulnerable. It could be that you go through a great banquet and you think, no, that was, that was horrible. I hated it. It could be that you go through a home group and you say, that that was the worst thing I've ever done. It could be that you invite someone over and it's, and it's absolutely deplorable. I mean, that, Megan, one of Megan and I's favorite stories is back when we were in Chicago and we invited a couple over. And it was, I mean, I don't know if they were awkward or if the conversation, but we could not wait to get them out of our homes, our home. But guess what? Our hearts kept beating. Life continued 
on. And we still learn something, even though it wasn't all that enjoyable. And the reality is, it seems to me, that we have to be intentional about asking what things can we do to be made somewhat vulnerable. I'm not asking you to drive on the wrong side of the street of a two-lane highway, but I am asking you to practice something. And you know me by now to know that I'm not going to just leave that out there like that. Because I know if I just say that, that more than likely what you'll do is you'll go home and you'll either say, well, that was good, or well, that was kind of lame, or I can't believe he shared the story about the bowls, or whatever else you'll say, and then nothing else will happen. So I want you to take that piece of paper that's inside your bulletin, and I want you to take two minutes or three minutes, and I want you to think. Now, I know I'm springing this on you. So then write down five things, or write down one thing, and then discuss it later on today, and say to yourselves, this is one thing. I'm not asking you to do 20. One thing that would be vulnerable. It could be that you're the most gregarious person in the world, and what may be vulnerable for you is just to go out by yourself someplace and just sit there and journal. Maybe that makes you feel vulnerable. I don't know what it is for you. It could be any of the things I listed or anything else, but what is it? that might put you in a vulnerable position that would create space for God to work in a remarkable way through you? What's something that you don't know how it's going to end? Take a couple minutes and do that now.